Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And the topic of today's episode is the rhetoric of reveal or expose. And Jack, I thought I would start off by giving you a perfect example of what we're going to be talking about. Are you ready? (laughs) Ready as I'll ever be. Okay, so this is the incoming Speaker of the House in Florida, and he starts off with a bang, and he's got some things to say about the schools. <laughs> Ideologues have pushed indoctrination at the expense of education. They spend more time defending drag queen story time than actually promoting phonics and the science of reading. So, <laughs> So this episode, I always wondered. I always wondered why things weren't working out in our schools, and now we know. So we are not going to be talking about the science of reading in this episode, although we do have one in the works on that topic. But I thought, Jack, that this was a perfect example of what our guest is going to be talking about. That in some ways, you know, he was both revealing what is supposedly happening in our schools, and how that thing which he has just revealed is happening in. Place of something that is not happening. So it's sort of a double reverse reveal. <laughs> yeah, and it's accompanied by a couple of other hallmarks there, right? A total absence of evidence, right? No, no specifics, right? Name the school is what I want to say, right? Uh, and then the other piece is tying it very closely to the present culture war, Right? So there's, there's an explicit move to villainize a marginalized population that has been deemed insufficiently strong to be able to push back at the ballot box, right? which is how you would push back against a political claim like this. So there are some very particular moves being deployed, and I'm glad that we will be talking to a rhetorician, a scholar of uh, rhetoric and narrative, uh, and, and who focuses on schools. Well, we have a great episode, but before we do that, our regular listeners know that we have recently wrapped up our annual graduate student research contest, and wouldn't you know, it's time for another one. Jack, There's the no honors. rest. No rest for the weary. Yeah, we are excited to announce our fifth annual graduate student research contest. Where do the years go, Jennifer? You certainly don't look any older. Neither do you. Uh, and, and neither do our wonderful graduate students, although many have gone on to illustrious early careers uh, in higher education. And so this is our appeal to you if you are a graduate student in education or a graduate student outside of education who's working on education. We want to hear about what you're doing. Entering the contest is really easy. Just go to the website, haveyouheardpodcast.com, and there's a contest tab that you can click there that'll give you all the details you need. Uh, Entering is really easy, and the winner and runner-up, in keeping with our tradition, will both get episodes next spring, summer-ish. Well, Jack, you certainly made that sound easy to apply for and definitely worth it. (laughs) Well... I, I, it doesn't take a lot of work to make it sound that way. You know, I think we're asking for like two to 300 words about what you're doing and, and 
probably we're dealing with people who have tens of thousands of words about what they're doing. Uh, so just cut and paste, folks. And then I think it's pretty awesome that you get an episode of your own. And actually, I was just realizing that our three winners of this year's contest, who just had an episode air fairly recently, were actually writing about something that is germane to today's subject, right? And so people should go back, listen to that, get a sense of, uh, you know, what graduate students are capable of doing, um, and then directly listen to this episode because we're about to talk about uh, the rhetoric of reveal, which I think pairs nicely with the things that they were talking about, about critical race theory. Now to reveal our guest, Mark Levichek is an associate professor of communication studies at the University of North Texas. He studies rhetoric, meaning that he looks at how people and organizations use words when their aim is to persuade or change minds. Lately, he's been working on a project called Curriculum Controversies, and as he took stock of the many controversies that are currently flaring across the land, one particular rhetorical move jumped out. Many of these curriculum controversies start with a expose of some kind, some kind of a rhetoric of expose where there's a sense of scandal that's created around a curriculum. It usually starts with some kind of reveal that there is something going on in the classroom that you don't know about that is terrifying. Sometimes this is an accusation that there is indoctrinating going on indoctrination in the classroom, but sometimes it's a lack of rigor. It can be other sorts of things happening in the classroom, but something you didn't know about as parents. No doubt this feels familiar to you. In fact, if you're a regular listener, you will recall our recent episode featuring the winners of our graduate student research contest, which looked at how the narrative around critical race theory took hold. Well, the big reveal was a big part of that story. But just promising an expose isn't the only familiar rhetorical maneuver that Mark identified. There is often a bit of a sleight of hand at play sometimes with these, where the thing going on in the classroom might not be the lesson itself, but might be the teacher's guide to something, or something these teachers are reading, or something these teachers are doing outside the classroom that's impacting the classroom. And then very often there's a bit of a vagueness, kind of a strategic vagueness. So critical race theory, right, we understand as this, you know, selected terminology, but political correctness has also been used in the past. So you see different versions of this. These exposés, you know, you get one going and they sort of have to seek a kind of what we would call now virality. You need some kind of media access, right? So you're publishing your articles in the City Journal. You've got to get other people involved, right? These often take time to take hold. You'll often see various attempts at the same exposé that don't quite get it right, <laughs> you know, didn't quite say the magic words, right, until a couple years later. And then ultimately, they're, you know, used to inspire some kind of action. Sometimes it's a policy change, sometimes it's mobilizing voters, but it's something that centers on the curriculum. 
as we will be hearing throughout this episode, the rhetoric of reveal or expose is as old as, well, schools themselves. But this familiar maneuver is experiencing new power thanks to our current moment. Social media makes these you-won't-believe stories easy to spread. And then there's the fact that schools are basically off-limits now thanks to pandemic precautions and safety concerns. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, but one of the things I didn't really understand about how much schools have changed recently is that I don't really go into my child's school. My child's school is very secure. If I want to enter the school, I have to go to the main office and be buzzed in. And even then, I'm not really ever invited to leave the office. He left his lunchbox at school. We had to go get his lunchbox. And one of the folks working in the office went to get the lunchbox. It wasn't like you can go to your child's classroom. I think this can help in certain places with these, you know, this rhetoric of expose and reveal. Because as a parent, you really don't know. I haven't seen the inside walls of my son's classroom since, you know, we were invited to visit the school at the beginning of the school year. So for all I know, it's aligned with critical race theory posters. They could just be all around in there and that's the whole theme of the classroom. When you you do these kinds of of rhetoric of reveal, you're really relying uh, to some degree or can exploit this kind of current situation. FYI, it was a Star Wars lunchbox that has now been successfully retrieved. So where were we? For all sorts of reasons, schools have become a sort of black box. And when you add in the fact that the organization of public education in this country is almost impossible to explain, even perhaps especially by those whose job it is to explain how it's organized, well, it turns out that it's really easy to quote-unquote reveal something secret or nefarious-seeming when you have an institution that's pretty opaque. Take a recent school board meeting in Denton, Texas, the place that Mark calls home. Denton had just uh, elected a a kind of book ban supporter to the school board. And uh, this August was the first meeting of the year. So it was the first one first seated. And this guy named Van Zyl, you know, had gotten himself on the speaking list. He introduces himself saying that my um, pronouns are top and gun. So you kind of know where this is going, right? Um, And then he uses basically his entire time to read out of this erotic fiction book. Um, And of course, like he picked like a very explicit sex scene, no bad words, but like first person, not really sparing details kind of sex scene. And so he reads this out loud in a room where like students are present, like not a lot of them, but obviously a couple of like high school students, you know, I guess as part of his effort to prevent young people from being exposed to pornographic literature, reads it out loud to him. The board handled it pretty well, like no drama. And then later on in this in the meeting, the superintendent, Wilson, uh, just kind of interjects, do we have that book in our libraries? The answer was no. It turned out that in his rush to reveal, the gentleman had confused two titles, one a steamy novel for adults, and the other a book about teenage mermaids in Lake Superior that's written for middle schoolers. It seems that he found this book listed on one of these lists that's been circulating around Texas, right, about books that are bad that are in school libraries. Somehow it's like the wires got crossed. All, by the way, in an effort to engage in in this reveal, right, into this rhetoric of expose. He's going to expose this terrible thing happening in the district. And so, you know, part of what can happen is you can find one, like, outrageous example somewhere. But also part of what can happen is you can just get it wrong. Because, like, education is actually, like, bureaucratically very confusing. It's, it's complex. 
Now, as you know from listening to this show, clashes over what should and shouldn't be taught in schools are nothing new. But there is something different about what's happening right now. For the past three decades, our whole debate about schools, what they're for, whether they're quote-unquote good, has been ruled by accountability— tests. Well, Mark says that the repeal of NCLB has opened the door to reforms and agendas that have nothing to do with accountability. I I really do think we're in this moment now, especially with the repeal of No Child Left Behind, where there's just the space in the policy agenda. As someone who started doing academic work on the rhetoric of education at the height of the No Child Left Behind era, it was just understood. Every policy initiative, they all, you know, end with the same punchline. They all kind of have to end the same way. They have to move the dial some way on test scores or something along those lines. And that's really not the case anymore with that regime gone. And I think there's a real effort afoot, you know, not just by folks like UFO, but by others to try to set the tone of what this new agenda is. And without accountability there, as much as uh, the accountability era was very, very troubled as a way of making policy, there's not like a center of gravitational pull. And things like scandal are interesting. They're fun. They're or, or disturbing. Um, they, they are they are tension grabbing, and so it's hard to fight back against that. We've seen plenty of the rhetoric of reveal over the past thirty years. It's just that it's been mostly focused on what schools aren't doing, namely raising test scores. But Mark says that what serial scandal revealers like Christopher Rufo are doing now is different. I think that, you know, Rufo's made a, again, has made the correct calculation. He does write and occasionally like, ah, if we weren't so concerned about this stuff, maybe they would do better on tests. But it's not really a strong focus, right? It's not like, you know, we must ban these books for the sake of the test, right? Like it's not, that's not the, that's not the logic. So Jack, I just want to pause here and reflect for a minute on how smart that observation that we just heard from Mark is. This whole idea that the waning of the accountability era has opened the door to all this other stuff. Because I feel like people are very aware that like, wow, there are a lot of folks out there who have a vision of school that seems very different from the one we've been talking about for the last 30 years. But I really haven't heard anyone put it together in quite the way that Mark just did. Yeah, I think it's a really smart observation. And one way to think about it is to think about people using up oxygen in the room, right? And all the oxygen in the room had been used up around the accountability conversation. You know, think about how much breathing was going on with regard to uh, the so-called achievement gap, right? There really wasn't a whole lot of room for other kinds of conversations there. And as the accountability conversation has quieted down a bit, I think I'm mixing my metaphors now. I've got like oxygen and volume. and But uh, as that conversation has quieted down, as people have been using less of the oxygen in the room, there's now space for other kinds of conversation, which is not to say that those conversations have necessarily been good, but there's a new kind of space for those new kinds of stories. Well, I think the other thing that really stands out to me, and we got at this a little bit in the episode that we did a while back with Catherine Joyce about classical charter schools, is that you're really starting to uh, to see just how 
much was sort of pushed off the table by the accountability conversation. And I'm thinking of things like quote unquote virtue, right? That, that <laughs> like that, that, you know, that, that our, you know, our conversation about what schools were for was so dominated by the, by test scores and the, you know, the, a good school was a school that raised math and English test scores. And so now you're, as that is quieting down to use one of your metaphors, <laughs> suddenly you do, you know, you have fairly loud, prominent voices saying, you know what, we want to return to the days where schools inculcated virtue. And I feel like those of us who are really only used to the accountability conversation are having a hard time knowing how to even respond to that. Yeah. One point that I want to make is that even though there is now some new space for different kinds of stories, different kinds of demands on the schools, accountability has not gone away. Right? So federal law has not changed, and the demands that states continue to place on districts and schools to be in compliance with federal law have also not changed. And so while the conversation may be different today than it was, let's say, five years ago or 10 years ago, the ways in which schools are still held accountable for student standardized test scores in two subject areas, grades four through 12, um, that is really the same. And the bandwidth that schools have or rather don't have to try to do new things, um, right, that, that that hasn't changed. And so I think it'll be interesting to watch this tension uh, as it unfolds, right, as it emerges between a a conversation that continues to drift away from accountability while policy structures continue to reinforce that same old accountability. Well put, Jack. Well put. <laughs> now back to our guest. What Mark refers to as the rhetoric of reveal or expose goes way back, but it often works in tandem with another discourse that you will no doubt recognize, the rhetoric of innovation. In other words, that thing that's being exposed it's some new way of doing things in the classroom that comes clad with its own language of expertise and urgency. This like back and forth between these two things comes in and out and it's come and gone for a very long time. And so one version of the innovation argument is we're going to teach science, right, or math. Another version is that we're going to make folks more um, culturally open or help them to see histories or other things differently. That's the more modern version oftentimes of the innovation. These both clash. When you have a rhetoric of expose, uh, the implication is that these teachers are indoctrinating students. They're propagandists. When you use the rhetoric of innovation, you also imply that the other side is reactionary. And that is sometimes a fair assessment. And, you know, sometimes like, uh, should we show this video of this animal dying to 10 year olds is like not an entirely unreasonable question to ask. The video that Mark just referenced is real. It was part of a controversial curriculum introduced in the 1970s called MAN, a course of study or MAKOS. The goal was to change up the way kids are taught about science in the world in order to help them absorb complex ideas more quickly. 
The story starts in the 1950s. The U.S. started investing in education in response to Sputnik. There was a conference held at Woods Hole, Massachusetts. One of the leaders of this conference was a very prominent um, education psychologist, Jerome Bruner. He came up with the idea of a spiral curriculum where you return to ideas again and again and more complex. Unfortunately, the folks at home can't see my hand gesture for the spiral. Bruner at the time worked at Harvard, and so a group of folks at Harvard started developing curricula. One of them had the idea of, hey, let's teach anthropology to kids. It went through a number of iterations, but in the end, it sort of began with basic life forms, and then eventually you'd have a unit on the Netsilic Inuit who live in Pelly Bay, Canada. And it was based on a bunch of films that were quite explicit um, about some of the cultural practices there. You know, you'd see things like seal hunts that would include, you know, the seal being killed, the seal being dismembered. You'd see, you know, caribou drowning and other sorts of things. And also, you know, family life in this community. Cue epic battle between advocates of the curriculum who saw it as innovative and necessary at a time of increasing global economic competition and religious conservatives who saw something very different. One of the first showdowns was where else? Florida, where a local minister with a sixth grade daughter requested a copy of the curriculum, then revealed to the world what he found. He said that Makos was, quote, hippie yippie philosophy with clear links to humanism, socialism, gun control, and evolution. Sound familiar? Well, so will the defense offered up by the curriculum's supporters. What happened is, is this became controversial. <laughs> Mostly because folks on the Christian right didn't like it and thought that the Netsilic were being sort of offered as a counterexample for how society could be, which wasn't entirely untrue. It was meant to sort of broaden uh, the students' cultural horizons. And so there's a, there a whole rhetoric of expose that went down with this. There were several attempts, and then it eventually took off when a particular congressman named Conlon got involved. The response back from the folks who developed MAKOS was very much, this is innovative. This is necessary. This will teach students to think about culture scientifically. It will help them in our goals of creating more scientifically minded children in the future. And it will help them be more open-minded to other cultures, uh, was the argument that you get. And so one version of the innovation argument is we're gonna teach science, right, or math. Another version is that we're going to make folks more um, culturally open. Mark says that you can find versions of this dynamic playing out in just about every education-related battle across the decades. And most often, these fall into a familiar political pattern. Conservatives reveal that something happening inside schools is actually part of a bigger plan to socially re-engineer kids. And educators and an array of typically liberal experts make the case for change. Then the first group bashes the second as out-of-touch experts. You see where this is headed. But there are exceptions to this political pattern. Consider, for example, our previous Secretary of Education. I think one of the cases I'm still kind of working through a bit is Betsy DeVos, who called for innovation a lot. So a call for innovation from the right, which isn't unheard of, Jeb Bush's rhetoric around the Common Core had some relationship to this, but called for innovation from the right and wasn't really necessarily, she seemed to construct a, a kind of expertise among like tech executives that was like a positive expertise, but she was also deeply suspicious of other sources of traditional education expertise. 
folks who worked in the department that she was running, in the Department of Education, various school administrators, certainly the teachers' unions. But what's kind of interesting about that is I think in a lot of ways, her rhetoric of innovation kind of got overshadowed during her own time as secretary by Rufo's rhetoric of expose. It kind of came in and really changed our focus in, in terms of the center of the, the politics of that. Mark, I'm thinking of research that you and I did together, where we looked at the rhetoric of failing schools as it emerged in media sources after the 1983 A Nation at Risk report was released. And we looked at a few decades of newspaper articles, and we tracked a story there about America's quote-unquote failing schools. And it seems to me that, you know, a quarter century, several decades of chicken little style claims that the sky is falling and that our schools are, you know, mired in failure really sets the stage for the kinds of claims that we are seeing leveled against schools now. And I I would just love to get your perspective on that. The rhetoric of school failure has been with us for quite a long time. It's, it's been a, a central driver uh, to how policy change is appealed for for a very long time now, and it's it's hard to get away from. Part of what's interesting about this larger rhetoric of failure is it's been popular on both sides of the political aisle. So uh, whereas on one side you might have um, narratives about test scores and those sorts of things, on the other side, you know, you have um, narratives about how bad certain schools are, right, in certain areas. And so you have lots and lots of different kinds of narratives that have made us very cynical about the condition of our schools. And so, yeah, I've written in the past about the rhetoric of blame as as a central aspect of the way we talk about schools, that we're always looking to hold someone accountable for why they're in such bad shape. And it's, I think, in some ways hard to construct a successful appeal for reform, you know, education reform, without really, like, leaning into it. It really is all pervasive. So what happens next? Mark says that looking back, it's all too clear that the incendiary rhetoric of expose rarely drives positive change. I think um, one of the interesting things about the rhetoric of expose is they often create these scandals and they create these public controversies. And one of the things we would like to think is that when we have a public controversy and a, a discussion in the public square, that it's useful that it's good, it's democratic, and that that moves things along. And of course, not every public controversy always makes improvement or reveals what's truly, what truly needs to be changed or what's troubling. And it's easiest to see these things in retrospect. The man, of course, of study example, the objection to it on the right was initially about it being anti-Christian or anti-American or anti-Western. It sort of evolved into a, we shouldn't be using tax dollars for this, so it became kind of a tax revolt argument. And then the reaction back was, well, we're teaching students to be more open-minded than it was, well, we're teaching students science. And neither side really confronted the really troubling colonial aspects of the curriculum itself. These films were supposed to be, you'd view them as if you're an anthropologist. The students are supposed to act as anthropologists. It's a colonial gaze. If you were to teach those lessons as they are written today, you would not just be in trouble with the right. Which brings us to another key dynamic in this story. Despite what you may have heard about public schools being impervious to change, curriculums are always changing and evolving. But that's not because of a campaign to reveal the latest outrage. 
all pedagogies come and go. We're going to find that aspects of the current pedagogical vogue have challenges, right? Teaching counter-narratives is great in some ways and is tricky in other ways and is fraught in some ways. We're going to learn that eventually. We're going to know what those things are. We're going to name them and pedagogy will ideally get better. I don't think we're going to do it because of what Christopher Rufo is saying. I don't think that's how it's going to happen. I think folks are going to I think academics and other folks are going to look very closely at it, maybe activists, other folks are going to think carefully teachers, right, are going to find that they need to adjust their curriculums in various ways and we'll move forward. That's not that's not to impugn current efforts to do things like teach hard histories. It's the nature of the game. Pedagogy evolves and it needs to evolve. With the curriculum controversies that I've looked at, they have not been super helpful in getting curriculum to evolve. They've mostly been helpful in furthering someone's political career or helping someone get elected or helping pass a pet project. They've accomplished other goals than making what's happening in the classroom better. That was Mark Levichak. He's an associate professor of communication studies at the University of North Texas and the author of Assigning Blame, the Rhetoric of Education Reform. What a great title. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss public education's villain problem and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. The right's rhetoric about schools is trending martial and frankly violent. What does it all mean? If you want to know more, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, when we were talking with Mark about the almost impossibly complicated way that schools are organized in this country and how that sort of lends itself to the rhetoric of reveal and the rhetoric of expose, it got me thinking about something else that in many ways education in this country has a sort of villain problem in the sense that it's hard to point to a person who you can really dump all the blame on, a person or a single entity. And and I started thinking about this because as we were working on this episode, it was at the same time that Mike Pompeo identified Randy Weingarten as the most dangerous person in the world, not Vladimir Putin, <laughs> not Xi Jinping, Randy Weingarten. And, and at first I was thinking, you know, like, what a crazy thing to say. And then I thought, you know, in some ways, like, she really is one of the few sort of national education personages, is that even a word, that we have? I mean, I guess he could have called out Miguel Cardona, but like, who are are you really going to blame? And and so, and I think it even holds true to the sort of outsized contempt and hysteria that the Department of Education gets. Like that seems that seems way out of proportion to the role that it plays. That in some ways, like that too is an entity that everybody can point to. And so, I wondered if you agree with my take and or have anything to add to it. Well, I think that's a really smart observation, Jennifer. Uh, that. You know, if you are trying to construct a narrative in which there are bad guys, right, you need a Lex Luthor character, right? You need the Joker or at least the Penguin. And there really isn't one because education is decentralized. And and I think you're 100% right in terms of explaining why the federal government is often presented as having a much larger role than it actually does. Certainly, it has gained a lot of leverage 
over that power, right? No Child Left Behind, for instance, um, gave the federal government far more power than it probably should have had over what's happening in schools, given that it has no constitutional authority over the schools and uh, contributes only about 9% to average school budgets. Um, so, you know, what then explains that? I think the, the observation that you're making about people searching for a villain um, explains a lot of this misunderstanding of the federal role. And, you know, I think that one of the things that I've thought about over the years writing books is like, who's the national teacher who could speak to this? And the fact is, is that, you know, there, there really isn't one. And in some ways, that's, that's like a part of the beauty of public education is that this is a truly democratic project, right? There are millions of teachers, and most of them are pretty great. Um, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of school principals, right? Almost 100,000 of them. There are thousands of school superintendents, tens of thousands of school board members. This is something that we are all involved in in some way. And I think that that's the only thing that I would add to your observation there, is that the other thing that makes it challenging to tell a story about villains is that this is a story about us, right? If there's something we don't like about our schools, we have ourselves to blame, right? This is a democratic system in which most of us participate. There are 50 million kids in this system, right? There are, there are tens of millions of families involved in this system. And so if what we are saying is that this system is unfair, that it is inadequate, that it is somehow failing or broken, right? Who's to blame for that? Um, I think that many of our problems are really problems of political will, right? They aren't problems of evil actors impeding the best intentions of, you know, those who are trying to run the system. And so, you know, you pair those two things together. And I think that what you have to do then is invent a story because the, the real story is actually it's both too messy and really not conducive to a story about villains. Well, Jack, you've actually set me up perfectly to... Oh, no reveal, like how I work that in, <laughs> reveal the topic of, of this episode's In the Weeds segment for it's our Batman. Patreon. It's not Batman. Oh, no. But I mentioned already uh, Mike Pompeo's somewhat astonishing statement about Randy Weingarten. Well, he is not alone in using increasingly martial and military rhetoric to talk about schools and what what the right needs to do about what they see as a problem of public education. So I'm going to lure you into the weeds and I want to know if we've ever heard stuff like this before and, and how worried should we really be. So if people are interested in, in joining us for that conversation and learning from Jack like that. <laughs> All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. You get access to the weeds. You get a reading list custom prepared for each episode. And you get to feel good about the fact that you're supporting our little podcast. And of course, there are lots of ways to support the podcast. Uh, so if you are somebody who listens periodically but are not currently subscribing, make sure that you do that so that you get all of the episodes. And I think maybe it helps our numbers there. Uh, go on and give us a review. If you're still on Twitter, there are 
there are rumors of Twitter's demise, but it still seems to be around. So uh, share the episode uh, that you just listened to and tag the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. One of these days we'll be at Have You Heard Pod. Pod dot confusion, <laughs> but for the moment we're still on Twitter. And if you're a grad student, don't forget to enter our grad student research contest. Just go to haveyouheardpodcast.com. There's a link right at the top of the page. It just says contest. Super easy to enter, and you will be happy you did. We're asking just for a 200 to 300 word description of your research. So it's a pretty low bar to just get your entry in there. And of course, we will ask for more as you advance through the rounds World Cup style until there are two finalists at the end. And unlike the World Cup, both of you get to win because we always put the runner up on an episode as well. Everybody's a winner on Have You Heard. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. <laughs>